Hello and welcome to Talk to the Paw, a podcast that celebrates dogs for simply being wagtastic. I'm Caroline Bartley and along with canine nerd Scott Andrews, I'll be discussing how and why these fabulous animals make such a huge contribution to our lives. As surely as day follows night and autumn follows summer, episode three must be followed hot on its heels by, you've guessed it, episode four. So without further ado, let's leap headlong into the first of our regular features. It's the Twilight Bark. So what news story has caught our eye this time round? A number of outlets are reporting a new ruling by the High Court in the UK, which states dog owners could face up to five years imprisonment if their animal attacks a postal worker delivering items through the letterbox. The change to the law comes after a postman lost a fingertip while posting mail, and since 2013 figures show 650 postal workers have been attacked, some quite seriously, while delivering items through letterboxes. So Scott, what does this ruling actually change? I was quite surprised that it wasn't already in existence. It is um, quite unusual, because there are uh, an abundance of laws already in existence. The change here is that the judge has explicitly said that when someone's delivering or posting something through a letterbox, there's always a short time when they have their fingers exposed to a dog within the property. So if a dog injures that person and the owner had allowed the dog to freely roam the house, the owner can be criminally liable. Can the owner still be prosecuted even when the dog is home alone? This is a big, big change. If you go back to the origins of the Dangerous Dogs Act in 1991, it actually says in Section 3, which refers to keeping your dogs under control, that if a dog is dangerously out of control, the owner is guilty of an offence. If the dog injures someone when it's in a frenzied state, then the owner is directly responsible. That other interesting point, I suppose, within this law is that 1B specifically explains that a householder's case includes people entering the building or even trespassing. So, you know, if a burglar breaks into your house and your dog bites him, you could be criminally liable. The last point I want to make is that the Dangerous Dogs Act does have the facility to imprison people for up to five years if the dog injures someone. In the event of an individual being convicted, we understand now what happens to them. But what actually happens to the dog? The court is uh, obliged to order the destruction of a dog unless the owner can prove that the dog is no longer a danger to the public. And how would someone actually do that? How can you prove that a dog who has already attacked someone is no longer a danger to the public? This is one of the greatest mysteries out there. Obviously, when it was legislated, it was thought to be an intelligent point. Realistically, there is no easy way to predict a dog's behaviour based upon past events. So if a person is convicted, just let me get this right, they may get a prison sentence, correct? Yes, Any other punishments open to the court? Well, the court actually has the power to disqualify people from owning dogs. So it could mean that aside from going to prison, you may never be able to have a dog in your life again. The other power that the court has now is to make an order for unlimited compensation. I guess we've always thought that a letterbox, it's a regular feature known to us all, seemingly such an innocuous feature, but perhaps now in light of this new legislation, not as innocuous as we first thought. Well, when you read the headline, you think, oh my God, you know, letterboxes kill people. 
it is very much written with the intent of scaring people. Now, to put it into context, as I'd like to, and in the UK, there are up to 90,000 postal staff, which is a lot of people delivering a lot of letters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, this article directly refers to the fact that there have been 650 dog attacks on postal workers in the last six years, which generally shows that it isn't as great a problem as these um, clickbaiting articles would have you believe. However, there are some other things to consider. First of all, it's not just postal staff that knock on your door. There might be people delivering leaflets, people delivering newspapers, Jehovah's Witnesses. (laughs) There are a a wide variety of people. I've had money collectors at my own door. Election canvassers, of course. Which we should (laughs) set our dogs on when possible. (laughs) No, that could start an entirely different debate. (laughs) Okay, let's move on from there. So, you know, the, the first point is there are obviously more than just postmen and women knocking on our doors. The second thing to consider is that not every attack is reported. Yeah, that's true. You might go knocking on a door, post something through a door, you might get a nip on your hand. Now, a lot of people would just shake it off and think, ah, you know, that's my own fault, or they'll justify it whatever way they can. But it means that both the 650 dog attacks is misleading, but also contextually, we have no honest way to evaluate just how dangerous the situation is around a letterbox. What can we do to, I guess, essentially attack-proof our homes, if you will. This ruling essentially recommends that dog owners install letterbox cages. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. I have seen one of those, and on a purely aesthetic level, not that nice looking. To be fair, they make your front door look like Hannibal Lecter. This quite wide and broad cage goes around your letterbox to prevent your dog or children even getting too close to the letterbox. Mm Mm-hmm. That is one way of ensuring safety around that area in your house. Mm -hmm. I generally believe that these cages would prevent any kind of situation. These cages are attached to the doors, preventing the dog's access to the letterbox. Will the cages change or alter the dog's behaviour in any way? All it's going to do is prevent the dog from getting to the door. The, The fact remains, the doorbell, or even the front door, is exciting for a myriad of reasons. It's the portal to the outside world where the greatest sniffs live. It's the place where all the visitors who come bringing strokes and toys and playing attention come from. It's the scary place where intruders walk past. So, you know, this front door holds uh, an aura around it for a dog. When the doorbell rings, what do we do, Caroline? We go to answer the door. We go to answer the door. Yeah. So we're hurrying along to the front door. The doorbell has summoned us and we run along. And then we wonder why our dogs are keen to do the same. We are making the doorbell even more exciting than it ordinarily is. And more interesting as well. Interesting and exciting. Absolutely. In essence, we add value to the doorbell by our own behaviour. This may seem like a bit of a bizarre question. But is there any way to train excitement out of dogs? In general, it does depend how long it's been going on and how deep-rooted the behaviour is. The first thing anyone would need to figure out is to try to identify the trigger, the motivation for it. You know, often you'll hear someone say that my dog gets really excited when someone knocks on the door or rings the doorbell. But what they're not seeing is the preceding behaviour. And in many cases, the dog may be up on the sofa or up by the window and it might actually see the person walking down the front path. So the excitement has already started before the doorbell has rung. Okay, so before that actual trigger, it's like an excitement level has been building up. And then suddenly there's this noise. Mm. 
You know, and this is great excitement to the dog. And one of the most fundamental mistakes that most dog owners make is when the dog goes crazy and starts barking away, what do we do? Well, usually we try and placate the dog. We try and silence the dog. And how do we do that? Most households, I would say it's by by remonstrating with the dog in some way. Yeah, you imagine, there you are, you're standing there, your dog's going, woof, 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 and you're going, be quiet, shh, be quiet. Yeah. Now, to your dog, who doesn't speak human, yeah. all that he's hearing is, woof, woof, woof. It sounds like you're barking to the dog. That is increasing the excitement level further. Absolutely, absolutely. And then the bell goes or the door goes and you've got something to chase or to race to. And at that stage, it's just a veritable riot of excitement. Oh, exactly. By this point, your dog is absolutely bonkers. What many people don't realise is their contribution towards it. Now, I'm blessed with um, a Scottish Terrier that doesn't bark. Yes, I remember you, you telling me about this and I know we've spoken about this. He's a very quiet boy. When he was a puppy and he got excited, if he started barking or growling as he was playing, I'd stop. Okay, so you'd remove the stimulation. Yes, yes. any okay. comment from him and it was over. Okay. Now, I had him 18 months before my neighbour realised I had a dog. Okay, oh, bless. Now, obviously, you know, that, that's not always that easy for everybody, but the thing to consider, if you can identify the trigger, if your dog does like sitting up on the sofa or looking out the window, you can obscure the view so the dog can't see through the window. To deal with the problem the best you can, you could always look to hire a professional, to hire a trainer or behaviourist who could teach you how to desensitize your dog to the stimuli that's setting your dog off. And to be honest, they would be a great help to you in identifying precisely what is triggering your dog. Time for the Dogler Effect where we examine the latest canine research under the expert tutelage of Talk to the Paws' very own dog nerd, Scott Andrews. We've dragged him away from cleaning the Petri dishes just long enough to give us the lowdown on a new study involving my favourite named dog breed, the Labradoodle. Scott, tell us more. The National Human Genome Research Institute have published a new study in PLUS Genetics, where they compared the DNA sequences of 150,000 random positions in the genomes of Australian Labradoodles with the same positions in genomes of Labrador Retrievers and standard miniature and toy Poodles. They did look at a cross-section of different dogs as well as first-generation crosses between Labradors and standard Poodles. The results were mostly as expected. The offspring of Labradors and standard Poodles were genetically a 50-50 mix, but what they found when they looked further down the generations was that the Australian Labradoodle retains a huge amount of Poodle genome and doesn't retain a lot of Labrador. Okay, so why is this? Why are the Labradoodles then mostly Poodles? Well, the article suggests that they're adding pure breeds to keep the dogs healthy and develop consistent traits. Wouldn't it be simpler just to get a Poodle? (laughs) Well, that's an excellent question, and to understand that, we actually need to look at the origins of Labradoodles. All the way in Australia, back in 1988, a man named Wally Conran was working for the Guide Dog Association there, and he was contacted by a woman that needed a guide dog over in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. The only problem was, her husband had allergies. Okay. He trialled a number of poodles, believing poodles are a smart, you know, intelligent breed, Mm -hmm. quite trainable. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, none of the poodles actually seemed adequate for the task in hand. Okay. So this left him with fewer choices and he decided to try to crossbreed poodles with Labradors in the hope of creating an uber guide dog that would capitalise on this combined smartness. Mm-hmm. but would have the poodle's hypoallergenic coat, or so he thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although he managed to provide the lady in question with a guide dog, I believe the dog's name was um, Sultan, he later went on to claim that he had opened a Pandora's box and created Frankenstein's monster, and that creating Labradoodles was the greatest regret of his entire life. Those are quite strong words. I find them quite sad. They're incredibly strong words. And if you actually sort of read more about what he had to say, rather than just the headlines, he does talk about how unscrupulous breeders have started breeding these crossbreeds for cash. They're doing it to make money. They're mass producing the dogs and they're creating unhealthy, sick, and in some cases, almost crazy dogs. I suppose what upsets him is that he's the man forever associated with the Labradoodle. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, he sees almost like puppy meals going into overdrive. It breaks his heart and has filled him full of regret. So are we saying then that Labradoodles are really for people who want an allergy-free Labrador? Maybe that's an unfair assertion. No, no, it's not. As you say, the the original idea, the reasons across the poodle was that poodles are often believed to have hypoallergenic um, coats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the idea was you wanted the coat of the poodle with a dog with the brains of a Labrador, uh, or at least an appetite for work. Mm Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, going back in well, all the way to 2011, mm-hmm. now there was a study in the American Journal of Rhinology and Allergy that revealed the amount of dog allergens found in households does not vary depending on the breed, and families with hypoallergenic dogs are living with the same level of allergens in their homes as people who live with a non-hypoallergenic dog. Okay, so this myth, I guess, that we've all been fed over the past number of years about hypoallergenic dogs, it's a misnomer, really. There aren't any allergy-free dogs. No, no. Even if you you know, get yourself a, a Labradoodle, they are not allergy-free, as simply there is not such a thing. But there are some dogs that are less likely to create reactions. And those are? What you need to know is that there are some dogs with non-shedding coats. Okay. And dogs with non-shedding coats are less likely to cause a reaction. Mm-hmm. Okay, One of the safest bets are the, the water dogs. Irish water dogs, Portuguese water dogs, Spanish water dogs, all types of schnauzer. You tend to find these non-shedding coats more common in toy breeds, mm-hmm. such as the Maltese and Havanese, um, Shih Tzus. You find it in terriers as well. Mm-hmm. Again, not all terriers, but the Yorkshire Terrier, Tibetan mm-hmm. Terrier. Um, the Sealy Ham, which is one of my favourites. Yeah. Oh, I, I met last year at a pet expo, a Glen of a Mow. Oh, those are quite rare, those little dogs, aren't they? They're incredibly rare. Yeah. And they're huge for a terrier. Yeah. Yet when you see the pictures, they look like tiny little teddy bears. <laughs> okay. You can find a complete list on the UK Kennel Club website. But to repeat, there is not an allergy-free dog. There is not. No dog is hypoallergenic. If you want to do the best you can for your own home, you need to look at non-shedding coats. We want this dogcast to be as interactive an experience as possible, so please get in touch. You can talk to the paw on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash talk to the paw pod, Twitter at talk to the paw pod, email info at talk to the All the podcasts are available to listen and download on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Gadgets. Gizmos. Gastronomy. Uh.
Now, we all know after a hard day, there's nothing better than relaxing with your favourite beverage of choice, whether that's wine, gin or just a good old cup of tea. But one brewery has taken it just a little bit further by launching a beer for dogs. Anheuser-Busch's Bush Dog Brew was introduced to coincide with the recent National Dog Day in the US. But it's not an entirely new concept. Way back in 2009, Arjan Berenson started a new trend with a non-sparkling, non-alcoholic drink for dogs. But Scott, this Bush Dog Brew, it's not a beer in the traditional sense, is it? Oh no, it's absolutely not a beer, you know, in the sense that it, it won't lead your dog to looking across the bar at the Labrador just across the way and think that, you know, she's the most beautiful dog in the world, only to wake up the next morning and discover she's a bulldog. Oh dear. Oh, you know, she won't lose her inhibitions and you won't find your dog dancing like nobody's watching or falling asleep on a park bench somewhere. So certainly no, it's not a beer. There is no alcohol in the doggy beer. So if there isn't alcohol in it, what is in it? Well, it's um, a mixture of pork, corn, celery, basil, mint, turmeric and ginger. So all good, wholesome things. Okay. Yes, but as a flavour, it wouldn't work for me. Um, but, you know, that they, I'll have a pint of that, my good man. That's it. It's, no wonder that mint isn't that popular in beer. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, they say that it's not a meal replacement, but it can be served on its own or over food, and it can even be used to soften hard food. So why would dogs actually like a doggy beer? Well, <laughs> I suppose the first thing to consider, and I've spoke about this plenty of times before, mm-hmm. the dog's brain is wired for his nose. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if the smell is strong enough and often not that pleasing to a human nose, the dog is likely to indulge in it. The second aspect to consider is the same way, or the same reason, we like beer. Okay. Do dogs watch a lot of sport? <laughs> Do they eat a lot of pizza? Well, you know, my, my Scotty used to enjoy a good game of basketball when he was a puppy. Of course he did. But I suspect it was the sound of the trainers squeaking that got his attention. Yeah. And not so much the game. Yeah. I was actually thinking more about dopamine, right? Okay, yeah. So this is our happy feel-good hormone that is released when... We eat something nice or we do something pleasurable. Mm -hmm. Dogs also experience dopamine. Their brains produce dopamine. It's actually what we harness when we train them. I'm sure most of us do use reward-based training. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I might use a bit of cheese, a bit of steak or whatever when I'm training the dogs. And when I give them something good as a reward for them doing it, it encourages them to further do it. And the reason it encourages them to repeat the behavior is because the dopamine in their brain is saying, Steak. Mm. So it's the happy hormone. It's the happy hormone. Okay. Apart from, I'm just envisaging legions of dogs just lined up against a bar waiting for their, waiting for their doggy beer. Apart from giving them things like this, how else can we encourage the production of dopamine? First one, and it's a good one for us as well, exercise. All right, and we've spoken about this before, of course, yes. yes. Uh-huh. It releases dopamine in the, all of us. Uh-huh. Dogs that love fetch, that is also dopamine releasing. Mm-hmm. In general, training, these different aspects produce dopamine. Dopamine is the reward that subconsciously encourages us to do the same thing again and again. That's why a dog will fetch all day. Mm-hmm. But you've got to be careful because to some aspect, a dog fetching all day is a bit like a crack addict down the side of an alley. I was going to say, yeah, it's the repetition of behaviour and that encourages more production of mm-hmm. dopamine and then, exactly. yes, and, and on and on. So, and yeah, on before dogs, you know yeah. it, the, you know, the dog's hit his teen years. It's living underneath a bridge and anyone passes by, it's looking at them saying, 
Throw me the ball, man. Yeah. Throw me the ball. <laughs> I just want the ball. <laughs> I thought I could stop fetching, but I couldn't. <laughs> exactly. You know, then they're going to meetings in their 30s. Now, my name's Fido. I'm a fetchaholic. I'm, I'm a fetch addict. Absolutely. <laughs> but back to, I guess, back to a, a, a serious, but perhaps not so serious point. The thing that I'm slightly confused by, and I consider myself an animal lover and a dog lover, it's the anthropomorphizing of dogs. It's the giving dogs beer, even though it's not beer. It's giving your dog clothes to wear. And yes, I know, I am one of those people who puts a Christmas jumper on my dog. <laughs> Guilty as charged, my lord. Surely this is this is just another example of that sort of behaviour. Why do we do it? In some respects, this all fits into the marketing of a dog as a man's best friend. We want a beer. It's rude to drink alone. And now <laughs> we can give our dog a beer. You know, we can sit drinking beer, watching Titanic or... <laughs> okay, well, if that's, if that's your thing, yeah, well, okay. Well, I mean, I'd need to drink beer to watch something like that. But, you know, in essence, there's no reason to call it beer. It's only beer for us to make us feel less guilty yeah. about the amount of alcohol we consume. To make us feel better about it, yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know, it, it's purely like a, a selfish behaviour, a selfish label. Really, if you want to give your dog something that will make them happy and get the most dopamine and give it the best evening, when you open your beer, get the stinkiest, smelliest, bone you can find mm -hmm. i'm not talking about no smelly meat smell you need something that smells like about a six month old corpse remember mm -hmm. your dog lives through his nose yeah the chances are if your dog doesn't like the smell it's not going to drink the beer anyway i think it would be remiss of us and this is um on a on a genuinely serious note when we're talking about dogs and beer there is a very a genuine, serious uh, medical and biological reason why we can't give dogs beer, isn't there, Scott? Maybe you could just elaborate on that for us. Yes, um, beer, as all alcohol, is incredibly bad for dogs. But to focus on beer for a moment, um, do you know what beer is made from? Um, beer is made from hops, barley. Yes, hops. Now, yeah. unfortunately, hops are toxic to dogs. Okay, right. They mm -hmm. can cause... Uh, a number of um, quite horrendous physical reactions. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, vomiting, the fluctuations in body temperature, laboured breathing, and kidney damage. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the fact is, dogs are smaller than us, and it means they're more susceptible to alcohol poisoning. Yeah, their physiology is obviously different, yeah. You know, wh mm -hmm. whereas it might take an adult eight beers to fall over <laughs> yeah, yeah. and have a kip on the sofa, mm -hmm. it's not going to take your dog much at all. Okay. The other thing to remember is that alcohol depresses our nervous systems. Yes. You drink a little bit too much. You might be out on the dance floor having a good time, but anyone can see you. They'd see that your arms and legs are moving at different times. Yeah. You look like you're on ice. It, it makes you drowsy. It makes your coordination go. It, it affects cognitive function. Mm -hmm. A dog's body, a dog's brain inclusive, is much smaller. It's not designed for alcohol. What it does to the dog's nervous system is mm -hmm. much, much worse. It slows their breathing, it slows their heart rate. One of the most worrying conditions it can cause is what's called metabolic acidosis, and that's when a dog has an excess of acid in the dog's blood. This illness can actually be fatal on a dog and cause cardiac arrest. So in essence, do not ever give your dog a human beer. If you want to try a doggy beer, Make sure you have a good look on the ingredients and make sure there is no alcohol in it at all. And if you do want to sit at home and chill out with your dog in the evening, give your dog something smelly or even better. 
take your dog out for a walk and have a little game of fetch. That'll mean that you'll both get the dopamine that you're looking for. Time for my favourite part of the podcast, Wagtastic Woofs. And the tale we have for you this time round will absolutely melt your heart. Georgia is the most remarkable dog, an Australian shepherd mix found living rough at a gas station in Rocky Point near the United States border with Mexico. She was taken in by a local dog rescue organisation who discovered she was pregnant, but this little dog's already tough existence was to be made even harder when all her pups died following their premature birth. Sunshine Dog Rescue, the group who found Georgia, decided on a plan to help the devastated doggy mum deal with her very evident grief. They appealed on Facebook for any animals that needed a lactating mother dog, and to their delight, they had a response. Three orphaned kittens in need of a loving surrogate mother. Quite amazingly, an immediate bond was forged and Georgia is even allowing her new charges to suckle from her, though her milk production is a little low. This fabulous foster mum is cleaning, caring for and protecting the kittens exactly the same as if they were pups. A beautiful outcome indeed for canine and kitties. And for Georgia, who's demonstrated that her love has no limits, a very well-deserved round of applause. Remember, you can nominate your own Wagtastic Woof. Get in touch and tell us all about that very special dog who's made a difference to your life. Contact us on Facebook or Twitter, talk to the Paul Pod. Email info at talktothepaw.co.uk. Your stories and comments, questions and suggestions are all welcome. That's all for now. Thanks so much for your company. Until next time, goodbye.